Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Tim McGinnis, uh, substituting for Debbie Montgomery Johnson, your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Well, some more than others. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, something that we keep hidden and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Uh, it's my pleasure to substitute for Debbie this morning. Um, this program is about good people that go through terrible situations, wise people know when and how to let go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow. While it may be hard to see it in the right way, the most important thing is to change your perception and especially your perception about your circumstances. Uh, Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons that they have learned from those experiences. I'd like to welcome our guest speaker today. Um, we're going to refer to her strictly as Sherry. She herself is a victim of a romance scam and is also a volunteer for our organization, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, um, and serves as a regional ambassador for our organization. Welcome and good morning, Sherry. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. You're very welcome. Uh, to explain just a little bit more, um, SCARS is an organization that is a government-registered, nonprofit crime victims assistance organization that supports scam victims worldwide. You can learn more about SCARS from our website, which is againstscams.org. We also publish an extensive encyclopedia about scams at romancescamsnow.com. We also offer a complete online support forum for scam victims at scamvictimsupport.org as well, as well as through our multitude of Facebook and social media pages and other websites, including our news website called scamcrime.com. SCARS is an organization that is supported by a multitude of volunteers around the world from Poland uh, through Asia, through the United States, Canada, and, and Europe. Uh, in addition, we have our partner organizations in Indonesia, such as Waspada, Scammer, Sinta, um, our partner organization in Malaysia, Singapore, uh, in Japan called MSTEP, led by uh, the wonderful Terui and her team, as well as our Latin American uh, division based in Monterey, Mexico, uh, led by uh, Diana Goes, Gonzalez. And we thank everyone for listening in this morning. And if you have any questions during the course of this program, we'll open it up for questions at various times. I'd like to begin talking with Sherry and letting Sherry share her particular circumstances um, so that everyone understands that romance scams specifically are not something 
that just happens to you, that you're not alone, that you are unfortunately part of a larger group of victims that numbers in the millions, both in the United States and as high as 25 million or more worldwide. Sherry, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about your scam, when it sure. began, and what your experience was? Sure. Actually, um, I met him on Facebook, or I got a request on Facebook in uh, March of 2018, and I didn't accept it for a long time because I generally do not. And not because, one, I didn't even know that this type of thing is, existed at all. I had never been exposed to it. Okay. So a couple months later, I think it was around May, I started going through requests for friendship and looked at his again and noticed some things about him that I thought were interesting. Uh, one, he spoke French, and I Paris is my favorite city in the entire world, and I go to Europe quite often. So I accepted the request. He was um, into art. I'm very much into art, things like that. So I accepted the request, and then immediately I started getting the waves on Messenger, which I did not respond to. I thought that a little strange. They kept up, and at some point, I did finally respond and just said hello back. Didn't intend for any conversation, and he just persisted. So I started responding back, and we talked for weeks on Messenger. And I did at the time think it was odd that he told me so much about him. And he asked a lot of questions about myself, too didn't again suspect anything because he was articulate, intelligent, he didn't have any typos in his his messages, he talked about travel, art, things like that, things that I was interested in. So we built a friendship, or that's what I thought we were doing. Um, weeks later, he asked for my phone number, and I was hesitant. He sent me mine. I thought, okay, and I even made a comment that if you um, bother me or, or you're persistent, I will block you. So I did send him my phone number, and immediately he started sending me pictures of him. How long ago was this? It, this was in May, June of 2018. Okay. So Please continue. We, can, we just continued to talk via text or, or um, phone calls. Um, it became a regular thing daily. Um, he was supposed to supposed to live in Austin, Texas, and he started, according to him, getting up early to be on the same time frame that I was so he could talk to me in the mornings before I went to work. I received texts throughout the day, talked to him in the evenings. I thought it was a friendship. He was actually, actually helping me with my French, so I didn't think much about it. And it went on for weeks, weeks, almost months before his story started to unravel that he was having difficulties financially, things like that, that I just, I just, again, I wasn't used to this sort of thing. So months later, he started telling me stories about how he was having difficulties with his employer. He had problems. Um, he was being asked to leave the home that he lived in in Austin for years. He was an artist. He was trying to get to New York to do a, a job for a friend and needed money. And that's how it started. And again, I said no originally, um, and he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And the amount that he asked for, for me, was not a lot of money. So eventually I said yes, and I, I wired him the money. Okay. And I told him never to ask me again. And then we would go... How much money did you end up wiring him? That time or overall? Overall. It was in the 20s. 
Twenty thousands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But so after you told him that you were not going to send any more money, that was the first occurrence when you sent money, right? Yes, I sent him five thousand dollars and said, "Do not ask me again." And then and over the time period, it ended up. It was it was about about twenty four thousand total. What was it that he said to you that got you over that initial skepticism, that initial hurdle after you sent the first money and refused to send more? How did he get you to send more money after that? The way that they work you, the way that they get to know you, that, um, he, again, intelligence is very attractive to me and always has been my entire life, and the fact that he was very intelligent, and the things that we would talk to outside of money, it was it was the way he manipulated that. I, I never thought that I could be a person that would start to care about someone via a phone call or via a text, but I, I did. I started to care about him. And that's and he worked that he worked my emotions. He it, it was uh, I, I started to feel sorry for him. I, I wanted to help him because that is something that I have done all my life. That's how I was raised. My parents, you help someone less fortunate, and that's how I what I thought I was doing. Right. And in this particular scam, you we're only told that this person resided within the United States, right? Yes, correct. Austin, Texas. And during the course of the conversation, you never had occasion really to question that? I did when the story started to evolve and started to um, not make sense to me and some of the things that he was saying to me about the problems that he was having and because of what I do for a living and knowing that the systems within the courts do not work that way, I started doing research. I started looking up the phone number that he had provided to me. Um, I started, you know, to, you know, to just examine things. I couldn't find things. And, but I still, I still was in it. I still played the game because my emotions were in it. Absolutely. So. And what, what, were those emotions that you were feeling during the course of this? I mean, what did it feel like for you personally when you got into this relationship online and every time that you talked to this person, etc.? What was that doing for you personally, if you can share that? I mean, it was, it was kind of like the first time I ever fell in love back in high school. Um, it was exciting. It was new. It was, you know, adventurous. It was all of those things, even though I was shocked at myself because he said to me, je t'aime, and uh, I was totally taken back. Um, and I could not express the feelings back to him. But it's the way that they continue to do that. It was very annoying to me over the course of time to hear him always say, I love you. Because I just, I, I, you know, I, eventually my feelings, I started to. I, I counted on him. I trusted him. Right. Well, there, there, is a, there is a thing known as compassion fatigue that when a relationship is very one-sided, the, the person on the other end begins to feel. Volunteers can easily experience compassion fatigue in caring for other victims 
Um, so it's important to be able to recognize that. But in this particular case, one of the things that you were experiencing was, of course, the scammer was exploiting something known as an amygdala hijack, which is a, uh, a method of manipulation where they, they sort of lob emotional bombs at you uh, when they initially, for example, say, I love you, it's for the explicit purpose of triggering a response coming out of your amygdala, which in turn releases a flood of hormones, uh, serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, oxytocin uh, yeah. and, and endorphins. And you become addicted to these. This is where those highs come from. You know, everyone describes as, as love at first sight or, you know, teenage love. It's all driven by, it's all driven by, by hormones in the realest sense. And over time, um, you know, you do react negatively to an overabundance of manipulation that is kind of overloading. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it that triggered the final realization that this was a scam uh, or, or did it until you found outside help? How did that happen? It, it was just the conversations and the – he would call on so many different numbers if I wasn't answering. If um, he, would, he would call in on unknown numbers. He, I don't know how he, they do that. And it was just that he was pestering me. And I was starting to pick his stories apart. And being the person that I am, I, you know, I wasn't – I didn't friend him for a relationship. I've never been on a dating site. I believe in meeting someone the real way, but through friends at events, things like that. So I wasn't looking for a relationship online. And I was shocked at myself of my feelings and how I was, I was, I was obsessed with him. I had become obsessed based on all the things that you just described, but I was starting to pick apart his stories and the times that he was supposed to come meet me. And of course there was, it didn't happen. And the, the way it didn't happen, the fight that he started for it not to happen. And then there was another time he was supposed to come, and the, the plane ticket he sent me, which I didn't catch the, the red flags on the plane ticket, and I went to the airport to pick him up, and he wasn't there. And the stories of why he couldn't come, it just I started to, okay, there's something wrong here. And I just started to investigate. I, I found out about reverse image searches, and I started doing that, but I couldn't find anything. And I was obsessed with trying to find something. I just needed proof to show myself he wasn't real. And um, You know, the, the problem with, with the search is that as the former president of Facebook uh, disclosed back in the fall of 2018, as much as 50% of all Facebook accounts are in fact fake. So that's a number well above a billion fake accounts. Right. We and every nickel and dime anti-scam group that's out there spends huge amounts of energy in terms of identification of scammer photos, stolen photos, etc., etc. We don't focus on that because we don't believe in a lot of value in doing that. In fact, there's a lot of negative impact on victims by constant exposure to scammer photos. Plus, exposing scammer photos online, unless you have a purpose behind it, such as the takedown of those accounts, 
for the purpose of disconnecting scammer and victims. It really doesn't serve any purpose. But the reality is there is no magic book of every photo that is used by a scammer. They are harvesting photos on a constant basis from random strangers online because it's necessary to continue to fuel, you know, it, it almost sounds like an Austin Power movie, but this is an incredibly large global transnational criminal enterprise in the trillions of dollars per year. So it's not unusual not to find photos. The only way to verify scammers is to go systematically through the information and discover it for what it is. Right. Well, that's what I was hunting for. I wanted, I needed some shred of evidence. And because I wasn't finding anything, I was convincing myself he was real. I have mm -hmm. over 800 pictures of this man. Now, I do know who the real person is. Um, and that was found by um, a, a, some girlfriends of mine. We worked together to find the real person. And that was where at the end, that's what did it for me. That's how it all just ended. As soon as I found out who the real person was, all of my feelings were gone. It's, it just it just ended everything for me. But that's what I needed. Did you transfer those feelings onto the real person? Did you try to contact the real person? I did contact the real person, but no, I did, I did, my feelings did not um, transfer to him. He has an amazing life, um, and the pictures that were sent to me by my, my fake person, you could see that. But no, um, he did reach out to friend me on Facebook, and we're not friends on Facebook now. Um, but no, I, I, no I, he has his life, it's his life, he has a great life, and he needs to live it. Was he aware that his photos were being used by scammers? I do not know. Um, I don't know at the time whether he did or not, but I did inform him of that. And um, he is a very nice-looking man. He lived in New York. Um, he is very much into the um, art community and things like that. So it's possible that he knows or knew before I told him. When you reached the point where you were convinced this was a scam, did you confront the scammer? Oh, yes, absolutely. And he spent so much time trying to convince me that the real person was stealing his pictures. So he never confessed to you. He never attempted to salvage the scam by spinning it into something else. Oh, he eventually did. He eventually did because I just kept telling him, I know who the real person is. I've had a conversation with the real person. And eventually he did. And then it became a game. He became ugly and mean about how, how stupid we are as Americans and um, how they live in a group and they're shadow people and they'll never be found and we deserve what we're getting from, from scammers, things like that. He became very, very mean. Did he disclose where he was calling from or contacting you from? He would lie about that. He told me that he was in Canada. He told me that he was in um, South America. He said he was in Europe. He, he also went as far as to say he's been as close as 100 miles from me. I don't believe any of that. But no, I, I, the, I, the reality is, given the fact that he spoke French, the odds are very high that he was from Ivory Coast. Right. I believe that, yes. And, and contacting you from there. Yes. 
So, you know, the mechanics of, of what this scammer did in terms of being able to utilize multiple phone numbers, etc. Of course, the reality is also that it was probably not a single scammer because the reality is availability is something that requires them to work in teams. So a typical scammer gang, for lack of a better term, can be anywhere from four to as high as 30 people. And typically the entire gang will work a victim at various stages of their cycle. They have people who are specialized in the initial setting of the hook, so to speak, and then during the heavy manipulation grooming phase, and then through the latter maintenance phases to keep the victim paying. So it's quite surprising in many cases that um, that a single individual will be the one always on the phone. But, of course, they do that so that you don't smell a rat. Right. Now, I, I believe every phone call, every conversation on the phone was him. Um, I also believe at the very bitter end it was not him because the typing, the texting was, was off, the punctuation was off, the, the misspelled yeah. words were off. So, yes, I believe. Yeah, that's, that's I, quite common. Um, did it ever turn into threats? Yes, yes. He um, did threaten to come get me. He did threaten to have me killed. Um, he um, threatened through another person that I met that was talking to him as well um, through a different name, told her that he could have me killed because I was trying to convince her to stop talking to him. What was your reaction to to those threats? How did you deal with that? How did you work your way through it? I wasn't afraid. It never bothered me. You're not going to come to where I live. I, I believe that 100%. Yeah. Good old boy from, from the Ivory Coast down in the hollers of, of your region would be interesting. Yes. So I never paid any attention to it. It never never faced me at all. Okay, good. Unfortunately, we as SCARs interact with the victims on a constant basis who are in that threat stage uh, because they've discovered the scam and are now incredibly afraid for themselves, their family, um, and those threats can take many, many forms. Um, since you've since you ended the scam, um, can you talk a little bit about your experience in finding support um, and, and what that journey was, was like for you? Of course. Um, with the image searches that I was doing, I went through a popular site to do that, and they reached out to me in April of last year and asked me to join what I thought was a support group, and I did. And I was in that support group for a very small period of time because it was very negative. Um, the members fought among each other, and I didn't feel that the admins gave the support to the, the group that I think people were seeking. And for me, I, I don't like negativity, and I was there for a reason. And um, they also were a for-profit group. 
and I pointed that out a couple of times, and the admins kind of got really angry about that. So I left that group and started searching. I found your group online, and I, I've, I'm in two groups right now that uh, – Excuse um, me. It's our group. <laughs> our group. <laughs> I joined our group, um, you know, um, just looking because I wanted to feel normal. Um, I wanted to know that I wasn't the only person that I'd gone through that had gone through this. Now, in the previous group that I left, I did meet um, three other women that um, had gone through the same thing, and we have become friends. We have met each other in person. Um, we are we're we're great support. We talk all the time. We're we're constant um, texting and talking and supporting each other and and laughing and that's the biggest thing for me. I, laughter is everything to me, and they help me with that. I don't know where I would be without those three women, and without the groups that I'm in. Excellent, excellent. Obviously, one of our goals as an organization is professionalization and dealing with the reality of this situation. Um, we've exploited the 30 years experience that, that I have, for example, in this space, coming from the very beginnings of my own awareness of this back in the days of AOL and CompuServe, up through the web and to the present time. But more to the point, the fact that uh, SCARS as an organization is directly interfacing, connected with a variety of law enforcement agencies around the world doesn't mean that we're known to the rank-and-file FBI agent. They don't know who we are from a hole in the ground, but their leadership does. And we're a direct uh, partner of Department of Homeland Security through their CISA agency, uh, as well as others around the world. We even have our um, Latin American uh, office in Monterey, Mexico, and um, and our independent office now in Guangzhou, China. So the result is is that from the very beginning, SCARS took the position that we saw these anti-scam hate groups that you were talking about and believed that there had to be a better way. So we looked at the the sort of industry of victims' assistance and victims' advocacy as a professional uh, uh, calling, so to speak, and oriented our own activities around that. And um, it's, it's wonderful that you were able to leverage that for your own benefit. Thank you. So since that point in time, you decided that you wanted to help other victims. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that process and uh, maybe – uh, jump into some recent experiences that you've had uh, helping other victims? Well, what happened back in April of 2019 when I was in that other group that I left uh, and meeting the other women and starting to talk to them and sharing experiences, we have decided to write a book. And we are in the process of writing a book and sharing what happened to us. And the reason for doing that is we don't want this. We, we know that we'll never be able to stop this, but can we slow it down? Can we bring awareness? The, the biggest thing is changing um, the Communications Decency Act, um, the current laws 
need to be amended to protect people, to um, make people less vulnerable. Um, and I think the awareness is that it's all too common to blame the victim, that people do not understand. They have a lack of compassion for fraud victims. They don't understand the, the, um, the con and how it works and how good they are. Um, the word cyber actors, um, that's what we call them. Um, so with that and being in, being in SCARS is if I can take what happened to me, and I'm an extremely strong person, and it, and it knocked me. It really did because I trust people to some degree, is to help someone else, for them not to feel stupid. You're not stupid. They're good at what they do. Um, be able, to be able to talk about it and open dialogue with no judgment, not to be embarrassed. So working with these three women, and we rely on each other, and being in the group and being able to make comments to new people that come in that just do not know where to turn. Again, I think the biggest thing is to make people feel that they have someone to listen to, or that, um, that will listen to them and that they can talk to. So that's extremely important. And um, recently, having a mutual friend reach out to me that had a friend that had been scammed and asking me to contact her, which I did, and spending hours listening to her about her experience and then finding out that we had the exact same scammer. Um, and that, made, that was a little hard for me because that kind of pushed me back a little bit, but I don't stay in places that are down. I don't stay in dark places. But listening to her, hopefully um, helping her realize that they will drain you dry and that you'll lose everything and that you have, there are groups, that you, there are people out there that you can talk to. And again, not to feel stupid. And that was something that she said to me over and over and over. I feel so stupid. And there were points where she said things about taking her life and, and just trying to, to help someone recover yes um on that point um let's see here um you know i think it's important to recognize that romance scams are a profoundly traumatizing experience and this is your experience with that one individual let's just call her c for the moment Mm -hmm. um but Literally, on a daily basis, we receive contact from at least one person who was on that edge and considering taking her own life. Uh, Many of our volunteers, in fact, are individuals who have reached that point of darkness where they felt like there was no light to turn to. And unfortunately, while I commend ourselves on being able to save that one or two people who reach out to us, sadly, there are many, many more that we're not able to save. And in fact, one of the profound transformations for us as an organization was an individual that reached out to us in the fall of 2014 who was a uh, an international domestic worker in Hong Kong who originally came from Indonesia. And this was a woman who had gone out on the street of Hong Kong and borrowed from uh, loan sharks about $40,000 and sent it to a fake soldier and then came to the realization that $40,000 was more than she made on an annual basis. And for uh, for her to have lost that in a scam, um, and unfortunately when she came to us, We didn't really have the professional awareness of the situation quite yet. 
2015 was our year of complete professional transformation. So unfortunately, we failed this person, and I vowed that we would never do that again. Uh, many of our volunteers have, have been people who have, who have gone to that place, and we have a special focus on the international domestic workers um, that come from the Philippines and other places and are completely isolated in their, in their overseas job working as a domestic servant or whatever the case may be because their only lifeline to the outside world is their phone and the Internet. So they're easily scammed, and the results can be absolutely catastrophic. But that can happen to anybody. In the case of the victim that you became aware of, uh, that we call C, um, something unique had happened in this particular case. And without naming the name of the particular mule, can you talk a little bit about that side of the equation and the prior knowledge and experience that you had had in that as well? Yes. Um the way that I figured it out was when I started asking her questions is, um, and trying to get her to send me information, she started providing information of phone numbers. And I have about 10 to 12 phone numbers that my scammer used. And one of the numbers that, that he was calling her on hit. And so when I reached out to her and trying desperately to prove to her that he's not real, I provided information things that I had that I'd saved on my phone that I had on my computer that tied the two of them together. And um, I was building her trust that she was starting to believe me. And this was a daily thing. We went through the same thing every single day. It was like the, that movie, The First 50 Dates. In the morning, every morning, I had to start yes. again. And um, so, um, so I convinced her to start telling me more about her scam, how much money she had sent, who she had sent it to, and then the name hit. And I sent her information. I said, it is one and the same person. This person is working with him. This is not real. And she continued to provide me more information. And, um, and I, at one point, I, she was totally convinced that what I was telling her was the truth. And that's how I realized you know, this person was a mule, a money launderer, and um, I just provided her the information. Excellent. So you had provided that information also to us because yes. we knew of this money mule, uh, had some prior experience, and in fact had uh, communicated this information to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. So the 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 great challenge in scamming in general today is that it's quite transformed from where it was just literally two, three years ago. When the Federal Trade Commission entered into their settlement agreements with MoneyGram and Western Union, both of those money transfer services began to lock down the services that they offer that allowed for the the transmittal of money to, to scammers. So the scammers were forced to seek out alternative methods for getting their money. One of those methods is gift cards, iTunes cards, uh, Steam cards, etc. because all they need is the access or authorization or serial number of the card, and 
then they can actually sell those. Uh, they typically sell them for anything from 25 to uh, 70 percent of the face value of the card. So it's easily it's easily fungible. But in addition to that, in order to receive cash, which is really what fuels the the industry, up to 2019, which was a little over uh, $3 trillion just in one year in all forms of cyber-enabled and cyber crimes, um, they have had to turn to, to money mules. Now, money mules have been around for a long time, and they've existed in other industries. There are money mules, for example, in the drug trade, for example, as well as drug mules that actually transport drugs. Uh, but in the case of scammers, the typical modality is that they will take a scam victim, someone who doesn't have money to send them, but they'll loop them into a new scenario and lay on the manipulation to the point where that person will will literally do anything that they ask of them under whatever scenario it is that they, they believe in up to and including opening bank accounts or giving them access to their bank accounts and online banking, etc. cetera. Right. Unfortunately, this is a significant, uh, significant crime pretty much everywhere in the world. Since 9-11, money laundering became a target of international law enforcement agencies. So for, for nearly a generation, we've had laws on the books internationally, Europe, the United States, most of the world, to control money laundering. Another reason why governments control it is because it, it dilutes and, and bypasses their taxation. So it's a big deal for countries to be able to control the flow of money. So the utilization of mules allows scammers to have someone who will receive their money from multiple victims aggregate it together, collect it together, and then do a single wire transfer from that money mule's bank account to the scammers, which is much less prone to detection when there's a single money transfer for whatever purposes. Obviously, the money mule, if they're unaware of their participation, they think they're doing it for the benefit to help that person, you yourself were spending a lot of your time and energy trying to help the person that you were in the relationship with. But unfortunately, there's also money mules who appear to be doing this for profit motive, that they've abandoned their moral compass and are simply doing it because they can make a dollar off of it. And in times like this, that can be motivation enough. And the other peculiar aspects of, of money mules is actually the largest single percentage demographic of money mules are people in their 20s. But they're being looped in through different kinds of scams, uh, scams that involve online work of one nature or another. Um, ironically, my own ex-wife um, was looped into a secret shopper scam where she was sent a cashier's check to be deposited into her bank account. She was then supposed to test Western Union by doing a wire transfer of 70% of that money. Of course, the check was bogus, and she not knowing how banking works, the fact that when you deposit a check, 
you don't have the money. The bank advances you money pending the check clearing. And if it doesn't cheer or if it doesn't clear, they want their money back. Right. One of the other things that most people are not aware of in banking is that wire transfers can be clawed back. In other words, yeah. in most cases, particularly wires here in the United States, you can notify your bank of fraud and demand that they pull the wire back. That's because the system has built-in reserves specifically for that purpose. When you're doing an international wire, it's much, much more difficult, but you can still force a bank to do exactly the same thing. Right. So in the case of, of this particular money mule, um, can you talk a little bit about walking C through the process of getting this properly reported to her local police? Well, before I met her, she actually did contact her local police and um, basically was told what I think a lot of victims experience is there's nothing that we can do. And I think that's something that hopefully over time will change and and, and we can get our, the money back that's being sent. So she did the police report, and she had given up. Um, and, then I, and then after... I'd had a conversation with you and Debbie. I'd responded back to her again and told her, press your bank. Just keep pressing that bank. And um, she sent me her police report, copies of all the checks, the wires, things like that. And I think she and her family became persistent with the bank. And I did, for the first time in probably four to six weeks, received uh, communication from her last night that she did receive part of it back. So I'm extremely happy for her. And I think it Excellent. Was just, she just did not want to believe she um, had gone through an emotional year and she really just needed to believe this person was real. Um, she could not afford to lose that money and no one can afford to lose the money. But um, she kept pressing and um, she got a good portion of it back. So I'm excited about that. So there is hope for, for those if they just keep trying to, to work with their banks and the law enforcement. Um, she, she never, I, I do believe she reached out to the FBI too and again got the same result. It's not large enough. We can't help you. It, it is unfortunate that their, their method of interacting with scam victims leaves much to be desired. But it's right. also, on the other hand, not surprising. Um, you probably read our, our guide for law enforcement for interaction with scam victims uh, about a month ago. Uh, I presented this to the Department of Homeland Security and to um, hundreds of law enforcement agencies that were in attendance to that. And since then, uh, DHS has sent out the SCARS guide to law enforcement agencies all around the United States, several thousand of them to be exact, um, because it is important that agencies understand that this is not simply a, a checkbook issue. This is profoundly traumatizing. It's taken us as a society, uh, somewhat globally, but specifically in the United States, it's taken us a couple of generations to realize the trauma of the experience of sexual assault and childhood assault and domestic abuse and get a handle on these. And you know, standing on a soapbox for just a moment, 
it's profoundly disturbing to hear people talking about defunding the police because, just as the case in New York, the first things that are going to go are going to be victim support services. So when law enforcement throws away money that's part of the police budget, it's in fact law enforcement that supports the, the efforts for local victim advocacy and local victim support, that it's, it's federal law enforcement that funds uh, count free counseling for trauma victims of, of crime. And it's extraordinarily important that these services not be lost to irrational budget cuts. But in the case of uh, you know, dealing with the police, there is something profound that the police can do, and they don't communicate this to the victim. Just reporting is profoundly important because we live in a situation right now where only about 5% of victims report these crimes. So the result is that they don't ro roll up on regional, state, and federal statistics. And we all know that the squeaky wheel gets, gets the attention. So the result is, is that when crime statistics look disproportionately small, they don't get the attention that they deserve. And we've seen responses to this. For example, in the case of business email compromise scams, which are another form of socially engineered scams attacking businesses, using similar manipulative techniques, although a few others as well. But the result is corporations the majority of them are reporting these to the FBI, so they have gotten disproportionate attention from the FBI, including the creation of something called the FBI's InfraGuard, which is a public-private partnership. But in the case of individual victims, in some countries, the percentage of reported scams is below 1%. So the result is, is the police believe there's nothing they can do and there's no real value. But just the act of, of fulfilling your citizen duty of reporting a crime is incredibly important because it's from that report that everything derives, including the budget for law enforcement, the attention that these crimes get. As reporting goes up, we saw in 2017, 2018, 2019, that the response of law enforcement goes up exponentially. Yes. For example, in the period from 2008 to 2016, there were only about 400 scammers arrested worldwide. Yet, in just one year, 2017, under the Trump administration, regardless of what anybody believes about that, the fact is it went up to 1,700. And then in 2018, it jumped to over 21,000 scammers arrested. And then in 2019, we had a bumper crop of 111,000 scammers that were arrested in one single year. Of course, 2020 is a different problem because law enforcement has been just as shut down as the rest of us. So right. we expect this to be backtracking on the number of scammers. But if you look at what just Nigeria in the Economic and Financial Crimes Commission has been doing 
um, they've been going gangbusters. They're back up to easily uh, 100 a week in their country. So, but, you know, you contrast that with, with countries like Ghana, which do almost nothing. So it's important that law enforcement know the magnitude of the problem because they can put pressure on state sponsors of scamming like Iran and North Korea, as well as the, the havens of scammers like Ghana, Ivory Coast, and the entirety of the, west of, or the rest of West Africa. Um, in the case of this particular mule, can you talk a little bit about the mechanics of what this person was doing? How was C sending money to the mule? Can you talk about the specifics and the mechanics without mentioning names? Absolutely. Um, she was sending um, funds um, several different ways. She did a wire transfer. She um, did cashier's checks, and she actually sent a personal check. And she was mailing it directly um, to the address of the mule. Well, that seems very unambiguous then in terms of the identity of the mule as well as the location yes. of the mule. And hopefully... Right. Um, Collectively, we can work together to, to take action. Um, C is supposed to provide us with, uh, with uh, the report information, um, and collectively, uh, we can have a conversation on her behalf with uh, Florida Department of Law Enforcement again and, and escalate this to um, more immediate action. Right. Um, Sherry, if I can... Perhaps I can open up the, the call to others if they have questions at this point in time. Sure. Um, sure. You okay with that? I'm, I'm fine with that, yes. So if anybody on the call would like to ask a question, um, please uh, identify yourself first and let me call on you, and then you can ask your question. Hey, Tim, this is Debbie. Can you hear me? I can. Go ahead, Debbie. You have the floor. Hey, thank you so much, Sherry, for being on the line. And thanks, Tim. This has been a marvelous um, discussion. Sherry, I have one quick question. As I was sitting here, I'm, I'm driving, actually. I was sitting here, and I heard your story, and it was like I could hear myself talking on the show. And I was like, your story is my story in so many ways. But what I want you to let us know is, is did you reach out to your family, and how did you do it, and what was their reaction? Um, being that... Um I am self-employed and I do financially well. I at first did not feel that it was anyone's business in my family. And as the one that everybody comes to um, for support and direction, I've always been the leader of my family, um, with my brother, my sister, nieces, things like that. So I originally did not. Um, the time that um, the, the straw that broke the camel's back where he was supposed to visit that second time and I had wired him the, the bigger um, sum of money, um, I reached out to a friend who came to my home and told her, um, called the police that day, and they came to, to my home. And I wanted to mention something about that, if I could go back to that at some point. Um, she advised me to tell my brother who I'm extremely close to. And he knows, but I have not shared this with the rest of my family because one, I'm a, and I'm an extremely strong person, but I have told 
all of my close friends. They know what happened to me because um, I, don't, I don't need for my family to, um, to worry because they rely on me. Not that I, I'm not embarrassed about what happened. It's still, of course, you know, I don't think the whole world needs to know. But I, my brother knows, my good friends know, the women that I met um, through the scam. Um, I trust them, and I get my support there. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you. Well, I just want to thank you for that because I've spoken to so many women who are just so afraid to tell anybody because they, first off, they don't want anybody to tell them that they're stupid. And we all know that it's hard. we have to forgive ourselves first. And I've just found in my experience that speaking up and telling the story has healed me from the inside out and has made me a much stronger person. And people need to hear our stories. So, again, thank you for being willing to share today on, on our show. Um, it's just important, and uh, you know, and people need to realize that they're really close friends, the ones that will hear the story and not drop them like a hot potato, are true friends, and the other people are just people that have been in our lives, and now it's time to move them out of our lives, because they don't support us in our strength, so thank you very much, I, I appreciate you being here, and Tim, again, thanks, I hope uh, Debbie, I think we're, I think we're losing you, so, uh, I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. Uh, does anyone else have a question that they'd like to ask of either Sherry or myself? All right. In, in the last few minutes, um, one of the things that I'd like to talk about that you've mentioned several times, Sherry, is the, the initial feelings about yourself resulting from the scam. And as an organization, we've looked at the psychological aspects of both the discovery and the period of time after this going through recovery quite extensively. We participated in, in uh, research studies in various places around the world and had the benefit of uh, literally we have the largest research library on the planet relative to social engineering and scams of, uh, of this nature. And one of the things that I, I think is imp very important for all victims to understand, uh, those on the call and, and those who will hear this recording, is victims are not to blame for the scam. You made one mistake, and it's important to recognize what that mistake was so that you can avoid it in the future. Because one of the sad things about romance scams specifically is that the majority of victims will be victimized again and again. The average is over two times. And the reason for this is you cannot intellectualize your way to avoiding scams. Smart people are more vulnerable to scams than dumb people. So consider yourself fortunate. You're not stupid if you're a scam victim. You're actually intelligent. But that intelligence works against you because there's a variety of, of pre-wired psychological conditions that make you vulnerable to being scammed. And once you are, it's vitally important to recognize that about yourself and realize that from an intellectual, emotional point of view, 
you don't have the defenses that you need. The only way of obtaining them is through behavioral changes. That's why the, the uh, Department of Homeland Security and their alliance uh, campaign of Stop, Think, Connect is so critically important because it is, in fact, the way the brain works. When you see something and your instinct, your impulse is to respond, stop, wait, give it a day, give it hours, and come back when the emotion is no longer driving the decision or the response, and then you can think more logically about it. The old saying, sleep on it, is in fact reality because as your brain is flooded with hormones and emotions in response to a trigger, you have to give yourself time, and frankly it's overnight, to flush that emotional memory so that you can think about it logically and make an informed decision. Changing your behavior is the only way to be safe online. Now another important aspect of this is there is a tendency for many victims who retain their anger, and that anger takes a long time to pass, to pass away, about scams and scammers, and they will be very derogatory. They'll be highly insulting. Well, just remember, that scammer scammed you, so obviously they're not that stupid either. It's important to recognize that scammers are professional criminals. They're not idiots. They're not stupid. They're not lazy. They work very hard at what they do. And to be an effective manipulator at the level that they are requires thousands of hours of experience. And when new scammers come into this, they're apprenticed as part of a larger organization. There are scam organizations that have as many as 10,000 employees under their umbrella. They have HR departments. They have training departments. Scammers hire professional writers to write scripts that they follow in order to be able to trigger and groom victims. This is not a bunch of guys sitting around on the floor. Now, it does vary from country to country. Nigeria is vastly more professional. Nigeria is a multi-trillion dollar industry. Countries like Ghana, well, you do have entire families, fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, children, who sit around in the living room and scam all day. That's the way they make money. And we know this because we have an operative that operates within Ghana that is our interface to the government of Ghana as well. So it's important to recognize the truth of this situation and this is where the anti-scam hate groups fail so completely because they give in to their emotions and allow that to drive their dialogue. Now, Sherry, one of the things that you touched on earlier was the Communications Decency Act, and very few people actually know what this is. And this is also what drives us because I personally am responsible in a significant way for the creation of this act. Uh, back in the 90s, I was a senior executive with a corporation called Tiger Direct. We were the, one of the largest electronic retailers in the United States, in fact, U.S., Canada, and Europe. Uh, 
when I put the company up onto the web in the early 90s, 94, 95, uh, our lawyers freaked out over allowing our customers to be able to leave comments and to leave product reviews because we had no protections whatsoever. So a consortium came together to push Congress for the creation of a law that gave publishers immunity from what individual users published on their websites. This is what enabled dating websites. It's what enabled social media that we know today, which are driven by user-created content for which the publisher has immunity. Now recently we've seen the president talking about stripping away that immunity because of the publication of fake news and the, you know, the, the propagation of the craziness that we see in social media today. In an ironic twist, um, we've been working, as well as others, for years to try and get this law amended. Senator Cruz has been a champion of uh, these changes, as have others. The unfortunate part is the industry is also pushing for changes. Facebook is supporting, apparently, groups to modify the law so that they retain their immunity with some token changes. We're asking for more profound changes. So still, they have a degree of immunity, but once things are reported, they instantly become liable for any failure to take action. Ultimately, you know, ultimately, companies like Facebook clearly are engaged in some level of misrepresentation, and I have to be careful about what I say about that. But if, in fact, more than 50% of their accounts are fake, then that's an incredible disservice to their shareholders and to advertisers because they're not getting what they think they're getting. And to clean house, I mean, Facebook itself admits that it deletes over a billion fake accounts a year. Well, those are just the, the new ones that are signing up. So the net result is, is that we need to engage in profound political lobbying and advocacy in order to change the landscape. Because most victims don't realize that because these are crimes that cross national borders, local law enforcement is powerless except when there are local nexuses, specifically a mule. And that's one of the things that victims have to remind police of. If they sent money to somebody in their country or in the United States, then local law enforcement can do something. There's a person that can be extradited from one state to another, and they have to demand better from their local police by being aware of what's possible and what's not possible. Right. So, Sherry, let me let you get the last word in here. We're, we're just passing our hour point. Yes. Yes. What would you like other victims to know in a nutshell? Again, I think it's important for everyone to know that they are not stupid. It can happen to anyone not to be embarrassed, um, to have open dialogue with people that they feel comfortable with, to find a, a correct and good support group because they are there. Um, the the scam haters um, again they're not going to um, help you recover that and I think that allow yourself to go through the emotions that you need to feel to recover um, 
what I'd like to to see is, and we we you talked about this is you know, notifying the police, but is there a way for the police to um, have better training to handle this? Um, that is something that I felt when I I uh, filed my report is he didn't take it seriously. Um, I'd love to see that change in the future and to also understand that scams are 90% emotion and 10% intellect. And people don't realize that. Just adding on to the one thing that you said there in terms of interaction with police, typically it's important to recognize that when a scam victim interacts with the police, they're typically interacting with a patrol officer. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's very important that you ask to speak with a fraud detective. Every police department has trained professionals that deal with fraud or bunco. And the kinds of cons or confidence games that we're dealing with here are no different whether they're in person or whether they're online. They still involve the same basic techniques of one nature or another. And the Bunko Department and a police department, they understand cons of all nature and are trained to deal with them. But unfortunately, victims don't often get to speak with fraud professionals. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect that I think is important is one of the reasons why scammers have such a free reign is because the people who have the most experience with scams, victims, don't spread the word adequately to friends and families. There's no shame in being scammed. You don't have to disclose all the details, but let people know that you were scammed. You don't want to talk about the details, but people should be aware because the truth is everyone in the United States knows someone who has been the victim of a romance scam. And a study that came out in 2019 showed that nine out of ten people on the Internet in the United States have, in fact, been scammed. And by the way, the definition of a scam does not involve money. It involves falling for a deception. If you invest one second of your time believing in a deception, you have been scammed, regardless of whether you lost money or not. It's important to recognize that the crime exists based upon deception and lies, not just based upon money. And people believe that they don't have any proof. Well, the reality is you do have proof. You have plenty of proof, more than the police want to hear. And therein lies another challenge is that the police don't want to hear about 18 months of, of chat language. They want to hear about the core facts. So it's important that when victims go to the police, be succinct, factual, and as unemotional as you possibly can. But insist that they take the report and that they give you a report number, because that's the only way government will know about these crimes, is if we insist that the police take these reports Tell them it's for insurance purposes if necessary, but get a report done every single time. And if you have a scam to report, doesn't matter how long ago it was, report it on our worldwide network, which is anyscam.com, where you can enter 
any kind of scam-related information for immediate distribution worldwide. So Sherry, thank you for participating in this call. Um, I'm assuming me. that no one else has any questions at this point in time. Silence. So at this point, I'll conclude our call. Um, I want to thank you all for listening to Debbie Montgomery Johnson's Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. And this is Dr. Tim McGinnis. I'm the founder and chairman of the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams. You can reach us at contact at againstscams.org through our main website, which is againstscams.org. And we look forward to seeing you in our social media groups, on our website, um, in our dedicated scamvictimsupport.org uh, support forum, as well as if you feel the ability to help others, come and join us as a volunteer. Everyone is welcome worldwide. We have incredible partners in groups around the world, including, which I did not mention earlier, Internet Valkyrie, based in Holland, uh, led by Maria Dirge, who is one of our uh, board of directors. So we are here to help, and we've been here to help for, in our various forums for nearly three decades. We are the global experts in socially engineered scams. Thank you all for listening to this program, and next week Debbie Montgomery will return with another guest. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you.